0: Welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and my guest today is Jorge Duany, author of a new book published this past spring by Oxford University Press called Puerto Rico, What Everyone Needs to Know. This book really does tell you what you need to know about Puerto Rico, and it's not shy about diving into controversial issues like the ongoing debates about status and the economic crisis. But it's also a really useful guide to less well-known phenomena, such as the migration to the island or the quiet work of environmental activists. It's a fun read, and here's our interview. Jorge, welcome to the program. It's just such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you just wrote this book called Puerto Rico, What Everyone Needs to Know. And um, I found it very engaging and a, and a really lovely read. Um, but I'm wondering why you chose to write this book now. Was there, a, was there something that, that uh, sort of impelled you to, to put this out right now? Well, last
1: summer uh, I had uh, a letter from the Oxford University Press editor who uh, is part of this series called Whatever Everyone Needs to Know. And it's actually a a quite established uh, series of books that has a similar format and question and answer and so on. And they decided that they wanted to do uh, a book on Puerto Rico, I guess because it was in the news and there's so much uh, media coverage, mostly negative on what's going on on the island, that they thought it might be something of interest to a general audience. And that's how I came to uh, to this project. Uh, so uh, what I did, in fact, was to try to put together in 180 pages or so, everything I had known about and learned about Puerto Rico for, uh, for several decades of research and, uh, and study.
0: So what's the intended audience? You, um, you said it was for a general audience. Who do you think will benefit most from reading this book?
1: But well, as I understand it, the the editor kind of uh, wrote that this was not Puerto Rico for dummies, but it's not uh, you know a specialized monograph uh, for for university professors uh, and some graduate students only. So it's somewhere in between. It's I think it's intended toward uh, 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 an educated uh, public that uh, that is curious about Puerto Rico, uh, but is not uh, aware of all the uh, specific uh, research lines that have been conducted over years. Uh, and so the idea is to reach as wide an audience as possible and hopefully interest them in, uh, in reading more about Puerto Rico if they're so interested.
0: So it reads really clearly and simply almost like a textbook in the best sense of the word, right? That's very informative. Um, and it it some, sometimes appears to have a kind of neutral perspective, but I'm really wondering if there's, for you, an overarching point of view. I'm assuming that it's not neutral, assuming that nothing's neutral, and I'm wondering if you had a specific kind of basic overarching argument that you wanted to get across.
1: Yeah, and I try to summarize that argument in the introduction where I talk about Puerto Rico as being a, st- a stateless nation or a nation of the move. And uh, I guess that has been my uh, personal obsession for a number of years, to try to understand how a country like Puerto Rico, which is not an independent republic, doesn't have a sovereign government, still has a very strong sense of national identity. And in fact, the argument that I make here and uh, in other works uh, before is that Puerto Rico is it is a a nation, but a nation that doesn't have a state. So it has uh, its own language, its own territory, its own history. And more importantly, perhaps a, a very strong sense of itself. And so, Puerto Ricans everywhere—not just on the island, but also in the United States—usually define themselves first as Puerto Ricans and and then perhaps as as American. But always, the, the Puerto Rican uh, side of it, uh, in cultural terms, is is uh, very salient.
0: So we might talk about this a little bit later when we talk about the um, the upcoming plebiscite to statehood. But do you see that sense of that strong sense of nation? Um, changing with the amount of migration and with more and more people moving closer to wanting statehood? Do you think that that's a kind of changing thing or has it been pretty stable throughout? No, I think if anything, the sense of national identity has actually
1: uh, increased, has become stronger. Uh, Mm -hmm. And even those who want Puerto Rico to become the 51st state, have a very strong sense of who they are and they want to preserve their language. In many cases, they want to have their own Olympic team that represents Puerto Rico aside from the United States and even their own Miss Universe pageant representative, which are sort of the symbolic ways in which Puerto Ricans of all political parties and all walks of life uh, want to assert their their separate sense of, of self.
0: So, I think we're going to get um, into the details a little bit later, but I want I wanted to ask you a question about how you decided to to build the structure of the book. How did you figure out what to put in and what to leave out? I mean, 100 pages, 180 pages is not very much. Um and it seems like you you uh you had to really cull and be quite selective about what you chose to talk about and what you what you chose to to leave out. How, how what sure. was that process like?
1: Well, I mean, I thought about uh, writing basically four chapters of the book. One that began somewhere uh, with the uh, uh, Spanish conquest of the island and beginning in 1493. And then, of course, that's a very longer time, four centuries or so, uh, until 1898, when uh, Puerto Rico was ceded to the United States. From 1898 on to the present, uh, there are at least two main uh, ways of organizing the material, one of which would be the first uh, three or four decades of the 20th century when uh, Puerto Rico was very much a colony of the United States. And then in 1952, where there was a major change of uh, political status and when Puerto Rico became a commonwealth or free associated states of the United States. Now, this particular uh, Date uh, and, and this periodization has been questioned in the past uh, few months. In fact, because now uh, many people are claiming that 1952 was not a major change in, in political and economic uh, the, the political and economic status of Puerto Rico. That it really is still very much a colony. Uh, so maybe if I if I had to rewrite the book, I would have to, to rethink that. And also, the other thing that happened was that as I was writing, I, I realized that I couldn't write just a separate one chapter on the diaspora, on, on the growing number of Puerto Ricans who are now living in the United States. So I divided that chapter into two, one which was the basic demographic and economic <coughs> uh, data, and then a second one dealing more with questions of, of language and culture uh, literature and music. So, so this book is different, I think, from other uh, country monographs of the series, uh, whatever we needs to know, in that it includes uh, two out of uh, five chapters, I think this is what I finally came up with, uh, that deal with uh, the Puerto Rican, six chapters actually, uh, two chapters dealing with the Puerto Rican diaspora.
0: So if you had to say three things that you want readers to come away with, what would those three things be?
1: Well, the first one I think I already uh, sort of introduced, first of all, Puerto Rico is a nation, despite the fact that it's not uh, part of the uh, nation state uh, universe. Uh, Puerto Rico doesn't have representation in the United Nations or the Organization of American States, and it's still pretty much absent from these international discussions. But I think if you define nation in a cultural sense, Puerto Ricans clearly have. Uh, that sense of nationhood. That would be one. Uh, the second one, I, I think I would have to to say that it, it would have to do with the diaspora. There are very few countries in the world uh, today and even in the past that have experienced such a massive and sustained displacement of people from their country of origin to another country. In this case, the United States, there are now many more people of Puerto Rican origin living in the U.S. Uh, and then that would be my third uh, uh, sort of short uh, comment that, Puerto Ricans have been moving uh, within the United States, uh, especially from the north to the south, uh, from New York, which used to be the largest center of the Puerto Rican diaspora, to uh, Florida in particular. And uh, central Florida, uh, and and especially Orlando, has become the new mecca of Puerto Rican uh, migrants. And that has led to uh, changes in in identity, in interethnic relations, and the way that Puerto Ricans have incorporated into U.S. society.
0: Why why have Puerto Ricans been moving down to Orlando and to Florida? For the
1: many many of them, for the same reasons that Americans are doing so, there has been a general movement from north to south. I guess the weather, uh, the snowbirds, uh, you know, that uh, are tired <laughs> of, of, of of very bad weather up north, and and they're looking for for warmer weather, but also work opportunities, especially since the opening of the Walt Disney World Resort in 1971. Puerto Ricans have been moving. To that area, and many of them actually work in Disney to to such an extent that uh, some people call them Disney Ricans because they are very strongly connected to to that particular uh, place. Uh, And also, in 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 over time, uh, the the building up of family networks, the fact that many people Puerto Ricans are familiar with the area, they may have come here first on a vacation, and then, you know, they like the environment, the cost of living is much lower than in Puerto Rico. And then it's close to the Caribbean enough so that they can, uh, you know, travel back and forth uh, in two and a half hours or so.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that I found very interesting that I didn't know very much about was the migration to Puerto Rico, not away, but uh, the way that it's now become a place where Cubans go and people from the Dominican Republic and places, lots of other places as well. So i um, can you talk about that a little bit, and maybe talk about how that's changed Puerto Rico, how it's changed the island? Sure. And this topic, of course, is is partly autobiographical for me because I was
1: born in Cuba and raised in Puerto mm-hmm. Rico. Family got there in the mid nineteen sixties, precisely as part of this relatively small scale uh, migration of, of Cubans to Puerto Rico—about thirty thousand of them uh, by nineteen seventy. Uh, and so, uh, when I began, when I first began to write about Puerto Rico in an academic way, and that's what I the, fo- the topic that I focused on. But since the 1970s, the the Cuban-born community community and uh, its uh, descendants, second-generation Cubans, has really dwindled. Uh, and now, by now, you know, according to the last census, of uh, something like 18,000 people of Cuban origin live in, in Puerto Rico. On the contrary, the Dominican uh, exodus has increased until recently quite dramatically and has displaced the Cuban um, uh, community as the largest minority on the island. And uh, according to studies that I have done and other people have done, uh, Dominicans have uh, not done as well as Cubans on the island, mainly because they come from a lower class in general or less educated. In many cases they're undocumented and also they, they, they tend to be black or mulatto and all of these factors make it much more difficult for Dominicans to uh, adapt to Puerto Rican society.
0: So, You mentioned something earlier about the reporting about Puerto Rico and the way that the editors wanted you to sort of intervene on that. And I've noticed um, quite a bit lately, and most of it is very bleak, right? With the debt crisis, the university crisis, Um, there was a big spread in the New York Times about it was fascinating, but detailing all of the kind of. You know the ruins that that many parts of the island are in, or at least that that was the perspective that they offered on the other hand, you also read reports of the kind of vibrant art scene, powerful political mobilization around environmental and other issues. How do we square these and and what kind of an intervention do you think your book is making?
1: well i I think it's paradoxical that precisely on the one hand, all the socioeconomic indicators and uh, that, that that media are picking up on. Uh, so the debt crisis, the poverty rate, the unemployment rate, the huge number of Puerto Ricans that are coming to the U.S. trying to escape from those uh, very difficult conditions. On the on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you do have uh, those kinds of uh, expressions of, of uh, artistic uh, renaissance. And there are places in Puerto Rico, for instance, in Rio Piedras or Santurce, which are uh, you know sort of deteriorated uh, urban areas that that have experienced a revival. Uh, you know murals and uh, art scenes and uh, other kinds of cultural expressions Uh, so it is contradictory Uh, perhaps the crisis has led uh, people to organize themselves and to search uh, within their own selves as to how to get out of the crisis uh, on their own but but yeah I mean by and large uh, in in fact over the last uh, year or so the only two major items that I can remember that were covered uh, in the international media at least uh, and that were positive were, first of all, last summer uh, when uh, Puerto Rico won its first gold medal in the Olympic Games. And I actually end that, uh, the mm-hmm. book with that note on, by Monica Puig, which was really a euphoric moment for Puerto Ricans on the island and the U.S., uh, and then more recently, the second place that the uh, Puerto Rican baseball team uh, 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 earned after being defeated by the United States in the final of the baseball classic. Other than that, really, most of the coverage has been, uh, as you say, quite bleak and uh, and quite pessimistic.
0: And so what do you think your book has to teach or has to offer to this kind of coverage?
1: Well, as I said, I ended on a positive note, I hope. I mean, I didn't want to uh, recite all of these very, uh, um, you know, negative uh, statistics, which are there. I mean, for instance, the, the fact that uh, property values have uh, have plummeted uh, uh, since the, the crisis began, that uh, it's very difficult to foresee any uh, future uh, economic growth on the island, uh, that uh, budget cuts uh, have affected uh, schools and 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 hospitals on the island, and, and many other negative uh, things. And I don't, uh, I don't mean to uh, uh, avoid those, those issues. I, I'm very much aware of them. But I, but I do think uh, that my book uh, hopefully will bring some, um, some more insight on, on what the causes and the effects of these uh, problems have been over time in Puerto Rico, and then looking forward perhaps to a day when, when Puerto Rico can recover some of the prosperity that it lost in the last decade.
0: I think that final comment maybe has something to do with the figuring out the status of Puerto Rico. And I'm wondering, so one of the, the things that's very complicated to try and figure out is um, these the way that the politics works in terms of statehood, people who are for statehood, people who are independ- for independence, people who are for maintaining some version of the status quo. Can you lay out those positions for us and then talk about, maybe then we can talk a, a little bit about how those have changed over time? Sure. Well, traditionally, there
1: have been three main status options, and actually, uh, in many cases, you can trace the origins of these uh, political uh, ideologies to the 19th century under Spain. But in any case, there are now clearly three, three options. One would be statehood in the sense of uh, full annexation of Puerto Rico as the 51st state of the, of the union, and there has been a growing, uh, growing support for that option Although I think it's still not the majority, but we can talk about that in a moment if you want. Uh, Then the the extreme option is independence. So, you know, that uh, Puerto Rico would join the family of nation states, would have its own president, its own government, its own currency, uh, and and so on. And uh, that uh, has been a minority position at least since the 1950s. and only about 3 or 4% of the Puerto Rican electorate actually support uh, full independence. And then there has been the in-between option, which is has been variously called autonomy. Uh, officially, it's called the Commonwealth uh, status or a free associated state. <clears throat> Some people have called it a territorial status because uh, it still is under the territorial clause uh, of the U.S.-Puerto uh, Rico uh, a compact uh, that was established in 1952. So those are the three main main options. Lately, there has been a fourth option called free association, which nobody really knows what it would look like unless uh, you know you actually got to the nitty gritty of sitting down and and finding out exactly what kinds of uh, <coughs> um, policies would would take effect under a free a fully free associated state but it looked it would, it would look something similar to the free associated uh, states of the Pacific that have uh, uh, much more autonomy uh, with with the United States so some some options some some things would have to be negotiated like uh, uh, free entry into the United States uh, citizenship rights immigration uh, currency and so on but it, it, it has been proposed then as a fourth uh, option to the three traditional ones
0: that I mentioned before. So it seems from the past few plebiscites that that the people are moving towards um, supporting statehood as the as the chosen option is that is that right is that how how the the, the sort of general public is thinking about I would political? actually
1: yeah I would put it the other way around I think what has clearly happened since the first plebiscite was held in the 1960s and the, and the last one in two thousand twelve was the fourth one. Uh, that Commonwealth uh, uh, has lost the majority of, of its uh, support, uh, mm-hmm. upwards of 60% in the 1960s to uh, something like 50% uh, uh, in, in the last plebiscite. Statehood did grow uh, substantially in the 1960s all the way up to the 90s, and then I think it sort of reached its maximum point never re- actually uh, surpassing 50%. So uh, the way I read it, at least in the last plebiscite, there was really a, a stalemate between Commonwealth and statehood, where neither of the two options uh, got more than 45%. And so the rest would be people who are undecided the people who support independence or free association. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in, in the coming plebiscite on June 11th.
0: Yeah. Wasn't there another position called none of the above? that that kind of drew votes away from everybody? That's right. That was one of the uh, uh, alternatives
1: and and actually got the majority of the votes. Not in the last plebiscite, the the plebiscite before that. In the last plebiscite, what the statehood party did when it was in power was to define the options in such a way that it favored clearly statehood. So there were two questions. One was, are you satisfied with the current territorial status? And then the majority said no. But then in the second question... Which one of these options do you support? Uh, again, none of the, the options got a clear majority, not even uh, statehood. And a lot of people actually uh, abstained and, uh, and expressed uh, that they didn't support any of the alternatives as, I, as they were defined on the ballot.
0: So the other thing that has to happen once these um, votes occur is that um, Congre- Congress has to take some action, right? I mean, the, That's right. the, the vote um, happens, but then Congress has to actually pay attention to it. Um, and so what do you think will happen then? There's there's a plebiscite coming up on June 11th, which is actually my birthday. <laughs> um, and so do you have any predictions for, for how the vote is going to go and whether Congress is actually prepared to pay attention to it?
1: Well, Congress has never committed itself to uh, a binding plebiscite in Puerto Rico. These have all been initiatives by the political party system and the government in Puerto Rico. So they've been called creole plebiscites rather mm-hmm. than, you know, any kind of legally binding uh, 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 consultations with the Puerto Rican people. And again, the fifth one that's coming up uh, is, is more of the same. Uh, uh, Congress has not made any public uh, statements regarding the uh, uh, results of the plebiscite, other than saying that they did want to have a fair and, and open uh, definition of, of the various uh uh, status alternative. What has happened in the past few weeks is that actually all of the uh, opposition parties in Puerto Rico, except for the the main one, the statehood party, which is in power, are have announced that they're going to boycott the, the plebiscite, mm-hmm. which means that they're going to run by themselves. Uh, so what I uh, would predict is that yes, uh, statehood would be the uh, uh, majority uh, option for most of those who do go to the polls, but that unfortunately it's going to be less than 50% of the voters, because, uh, you know, the other 50% are not going to show up at the polls.
0: So it still seems very divided. And the bottom line, it seems to me, is that what Puerto Ricans would like is maybe a break on this whole bankruptcy issue and debt relief, um, and just a little bit more sort of equity in terms of um, their, their place in the world. That, it seems like that's the one of the main kind of aspirations.
1: I agree. I think uh, the economic situation is so dire at this point that, it, that that's the, the major issue that has to be addressed. And, uh, uh, and then perhaps think of a long term solution to this, um, you know, eternal status issue that, that in way, one way or another uh, affects Puerto Ricans uh, in their daily life um, uh, almost uh, completely. It's, it's inescapable. But 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 to to divide the, the country in terms of its opinion regarding what kind of uh, status option for the future really uh, is a distraction I think in many ways uh, from the very difficult uh, situation that the Puerto Ricans uh, face at this point.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating when I talk to my students about it how they to watch them wrap their heads around this sense, this notion of ambiguity, right? There's this deep, deep ambiguity about the status and and thinking about how divisive it seems to have been for the the population. It's really...
1: Yes, and I think sometimes um, in, uh, you know, in very quick and um, superficial discussions, uh, that ambiguity is often um, sort of blamed on Puerto Rican people, Puerto Rican people themselves. They can't make up their mind. Right. So you know, but in fact, I think if you look at the history of the, the status issue, uh, the whole uh, problem begins with the very legal definition of Puerto Ricans by um, the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh-huh. And that goes back to the famous phrase that uh, the, the court uh, used when, when dealing with one of its famous cases uh, in the early 19th, 20th century, that Puerto Rico was foreign in a domestic sense. And that <laughs> that phrase still haunts every every discussion
0: yeah.
1: uh, of Puerto Rico because, you know, of course the two terms are uh, self-contradictory. So the ambiguity, I think, arises precisely from this lack of, of a clear uh, uh, expression of of what the United States, uh, both Congress and the Supreme Court, even presidents who have usually said, "Yeah, we'll go along with whatever the Puerto Rican people uh, want," but 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 in fact, it's a it's a legally uh, ambiguous and very paradoxical definition of what the country is is supposed to be.
0: And in fact, I think as I'm reading more and more, it turns out that the U.S. empire actually had lots of these ambiguously defined places and it may have been one of the mechanisms by which empire spread was just to kind of sort of leave things very vague and see what happened. Yeah,
1: and for instance, uh, as you know, the term colony was never something that, uh, you know, uh, policymakers were comfortable with uh, in, in the early 20th century. So they preferred to use terms like Again, another uh, oxymoron, unincorporated territory mm-hmm. Puerto Rico is still it, it's supposed to be it belong to but not be a part of the united states right and, 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 and again, that creates all kinds of uh, difficult legal and uh, and, and political uh, uh, discussions that had
0: haven't been solved
1: uh, for more than a hundred
0: years yeah. Um, so, moving beyond um, this, this wonderful little book, I'm wondering what kind, of, what kind of scholarship on Puerto Rico would you most like to see in the coming years? What are the kind of big questions that you think need more investigation? Well,
1: uh, at the end of the book, I, I try to include uh, a list of sort of minimal sources and, and suggested readings. And I, and I included, uh, hopefully, uh, different perspectives and different disciplines. And I think there's a lot going on already. A lot of it is published by the uh, uh, main journal of Puerto Rican Studies uh, coming out of Hunter College uh, called Centro, uh, that's by, uh, published by the Center for Puerto Rican Studies. And they do a wonderful job at, uh, at, at trying to uh, uh, publish uh, cutting-edge scholarships. So, for instance, I know that one of the uh, forthcoming uh, edited volumes based on, on this journal is going to be on race, racial mm-hmm. identity Uh, of Puerto Ricans on the island and the United States, Uh, there's an upcoming uh, volume on on gay, lesbian, and transgender issues that I think uh, uh, we're now beginning to see more work on. Um, So those are the kinds of issues. uh, Gender is also, of course, uh, very much uh, a concern of many younger scholars. And then the relationship between the diaspora and the island continues to be, I think, uh, uh, a troubled one. Uh, Although I think it has improved because of the work of some professional associations, like the Puerto Rican Studies Association, uh, which is based in New York, actually, and I've been a member of for a long time. But you still see that divide that, uh, you know, where are you from? Are you from here? Are you from there? What language do you speak? uh, English or Spanish or Spanglish? And uh, that continues to be uh, an obstacle to uh, a better understanding of, of, you know, what Puerto Rico is on both shores. Uh, in the US or on the island uh, still share very much, even though they they uh, don't necessarily uh, have the same kind of uh, cultural uh, practices.
0: So I've taken up lots of your time. I'm wondering if uh, we can close by just asking you if you're wor- if you yourself are working on a new project and what what your future holds.
1: Well, now that I've moved to Miami and I'm more concerned with with Cuba uh, because I'm uh, based at the Cuban Research Institute here at Florida International University, I'm trying to uh, figure out uh, the relationship and the distinction between uh, Puerto Ricans uh, on the one hand and Cubans on the other. Mm -hmm. And so my last uh, research project project on Puerto Rican migration actually had to do with the so-called Orlando Ricans uh, in Orlando. And I, I, I interviewed a, a, a small sample of community leaders to try to understand how they define themselves and how they related to others. Now that I'm in Miami, I hope at one point I don't have the time uh, right now uh, because of my administrative duties. But I hope that I could follow up on that same kind of project and perhaps uh, compare uh, a similar group of, of Cuban-American leaders here in Miami and see how they relate to to home, to uh, questions of, of, of identity, uh, whether they – they support the kinds of transnational connections that Puerto Ricans seem to be engaged in, uh, with, uh, not now, but for, for many years. And then to try to understand, of course, the politics of, of the two communities that are very different. And In fact, uh, last year, for instance, there was a lot of talk about whether Cubans and uh, Puerto Ricans in Orlando, Cubans in Miami, might have a decisive impact on presidential elections.
0: Yeah, and it seems like those communities are changing um, very rapidly, so it's a very timely kind of project, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and in the midst of Miami, because we we have seen uh, this growth of the uh, the Cuban the Cuban community over the last twenty years, and and also the end of uh, an era with uh, the cancellation of the word for dry food policy that allowed Cubans to stay here they made it to U.S. soil, so. This is this last wave has has really had an impact in Miami. Has been changing the demographics and the politics of the community, as well as with uh, along with uh, the continuing migration of Central and South Americans. And so Miami now is very much a, a Latino city, not just a Cuban city, and a multi ethnic and multiracial uh, community that it's fascinating to to study as a sort of a natural lab uh, situation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And even in the headlines today, we can see that the Cuba policy may actually be changing as we speak. So we have to keep ahead of that as well. Uh Uh (laughs) Um, Thanks so much for talking to me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I did
1: too.